This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about Richard Wright. Before the 60s, he was America's most famous black writer. The author of two books hailed as classics when they were published, Native Son in 1940 and Black Boy in 1945. But his standing and reputation were shakier than anyone at the time imagined. And that story tells us a lot about Black America at mid-century. For comment, we turn to Adam Schatz. Adam was the nation's literary editor. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books, where he wrote about Richard Wright. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and other publications. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Great to be on again, John. Native Son is unforgettable for its central character, Bigger Thomas. Remind us about him. Bigger Thomas, John, is a poor uh, slum dweller who becomes a chauffeur for uh, a wealthy man uh, in Chicago, and he ends up committing two horrifying killings. The first uh, is a manslaughter, the, ac- the accidental killing of the chauffeur's uh, daughter. The, the second killing is a premeditated murder of his Black girlfriend, Bess, to prevent her from revealing what she knows about the other killing. There have been Black writers, really good Black writers, who criticized Richard Wright for Bigger Thomas starting pretty early. You quote James Baldwin in 1949. Who was James Baldwin in 1949? And what was his criticism of Native Son and Bigger Thomas? James Baldwin in 1949 was an up-and-coming writer from New York who had been publishing in places like the Partisan Review. And he was working on, on the novel, the autobiographical novel that would become Go Tell It on the Mountain. And Richard Wright had done a great deal to promote his career. It helped him to win a, a lucrative Eugene Saxton fellowship. He'd entertained him at his home. He'd introduced him to people. Uh, Baldwin ended up following uh, Richard Wright to Paris. And shortly after he got to Paris, he published uh, a piece about, about Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which concluded with uh, quite a critical uh, set of paragraphs about Native Son likening Native Son to Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic work of sentimental protest fiction. And it was called Everybody's Protest Novel. And he followed it up with a second piece, which was even more critical of Native Son. And his argument essentially was that Bigger Thomas was was a political ideological construct rather than an actual human being, and that he was uh, essentially a tool by which Richard Wright took apart uh, the fictions of American racism, that Richard Wright had essentially reduced a Black man to his categorization, much like Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin. The fact is, John, Native Son uh, was always controversial, not just among white readers, but among Black readers, for different reasons, of course. I also want to ask about Richard Wright as a prominent member of the Communist Party, one of their most famous Black voices. He came to represent all the limitations of proletarian realism, the party line of the time. Was that a fair criticism? 
I don't think it was a fair criticism. Uh, Richard Wright published uh, Native Son in 1940, two years before he left the Communist Party. He had risen in the ranks of the Communist Party after he arrived um, in Chicago uh, as a young man from the South, having made the Great Migration. And it was through the Communist Party and specifically through its John Reed Club uh, for writers that Wright acquired a sense of his voice and sensibility, first as a poet, then as a journalist and a writer uh, of fiction. And you know what's striking about uh, Wright's uh, so-called proletarian fiction is not just the extent to which it adheres to the codes of the kind of hungry realism of the 1930s, but also the extent to which it departs from those codes and challenges them. There's always a kind of expressionistic surplus to Wright's work. It, it is proletarian fiction, and yet at the same time, it's something more than that. And, and as I suggested in my piece, it's reminiscent in some ways of the burgeoning genre of noir, which of course has its origins in European expressionism. So James Baldwin was a prominent uh, critic of uh, Bigger Thomas and, uh, and of Native Son, but by the mid 60s, there were new black writers who considered Bigger Thomas an authentic hero. One of them was Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther militant whose book Soul on Ice was a bestseller in 1968. The New York Times named Soul on Ice one of the 10 best books of the year. And then by the 70s, there were black feminists who were objecting to Bigger Thomas and to Richard Wright. How did this debate play out in black culture? Well, you know, Richard Wright had published What Until uh, Invisible Man, which in some ways is a, a response and rejoinder to Native Son, was the most famous novel uh, by a Black American. And so everyone felt they had to respond to it uh, in some fashion. Ralph Ellison, of course, had been an early supporter of the novel. The two of them were very close. They'd met in the Communist Party. Richard Wright was a mentor to Ralph Ellison. And Ralph Ellison admired not just the novel, but Bigger Thomas. He saw Bigger Thomas as a, a kind of authentic tribune of Black revolt against racism. Uh, this, of course, is the argument that gets taken up by Eldridge Cleaver years after Ralph Ellison had excoriated Richard Wright in a, a very long essay that he wrote in response to Irving Howe, who had published a piece called Black Boys and Native Sons, which was an essay on Ellison, Wright, uh, and Baldwin. The figure of Bigger Thomas would get drawn into innumerable discussions of the purpose and function of Black literature. Was the purpose of Black literature to depict Black life? Was it to lodge a protest against the constraints imposed by white supremacy? Was it both? Richard Wright had his own answer and, uh, in, in, um, in, and, and made it uh, very dramatically uh, in Native Son. So in a sense, he, he set the terms of the debate for many years. In your piece in the LRB, you, you show that part of the problem uh, is that Native Son had been edited by the publisher in the Book of the Month Club, and that, in fact, we did not see the original version of Bigger Thomas until 1992, thanks to the Library of, of America. You've compared the old and new editions. What got edited out? What got suppressed in the version that was read by, by all of us? 
Well, what got suppressed, I think what's what, what's most important for us to focus on is the sexual attraction that Mary Dalton, uh, the daughter of the wealthy man who uh, employs Bigger Thomas, has for Bigger Thomas on the fateful night when they go out with her uh, with her, bo- her communist boyfriend. There is a scene where uh, Bigger Thomas uh, takes her to her bedroom and they begin to fondle each other. And it seems as though they may, in fact, consummate the act when uh, Mary Dalton's blind mother walks into the room and Bigger Thomas, terrified that he might be found with this white woman and accused of rape, accidentally kills her by silencing her with a pillow. Her attraction to Bigger Thomas was censored, leaving Bigger to appear as kind of the stereotypical black monster who is raping uh, the white woman and then and then killing her. People who read Native Son until 1992 were unaware that there was this uh, sexual intimacy between Bigger and Mary Dalton. It takes something out that's very crucial. And in fact, I think it helps to explain why Baldwin uh, saw uh, Bigger Thomas as someone who had been reduced to his categorization by white racism. And you also argue there's more to Richard Wright than Native Son. In fact, he wrote another novel, one I don't know anything about, The Man Who Lived Underground. Uh, It's only appeared in print now. You have read it. What is The Man Who Lived Underground? How does it compare to Native Son? The Man Who Lived Underground was published originally um, in a posthumous collection of stories called Eight Men. Um, in a much shorter form. Richard Wright wrote this book um, in 1942, just after the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union, um, at a time when he was becoming incredibly disillusioned with the Communist Party because the party was no longer fighting against racism in the war industry. He He began work on this short novel, which is a very Dostoevskian work, as the title suggests. It's about a working class uh, married Black man whose wife is expecting a child who is unjustly accused of of murder and of attempting to uh, rape his victim's uh, wife. And he flees uh, the police, climbs into a sewer, and ends up living there for some indeterminate amount of time and begins to experience what might be called revelations about the world outside, about the nature of freedom, about guilt. It's a, it's a deeply uh, philosophical novel and, and quite a fascinating one. One of the people who read this was a left-wing psychiatrist, Frederick Wortham, a professor at Johns Hopkins, who wrote a wonderful little verse about the man who lived underground. Can you Tell us what he wrote. He sent Wright a short poem, and it goes like this. The Freudians talk about the id and bury it below, but Richard Wright took off the lid and let us see the woe. Amazing. Let us see the woe. And that's your sense of the book, too. Very much so. And, you know, the relationship between Wright and Wertham would bloom um, a few years after the pub, after Wright wrote The Man Who Lived Underground. Uh, Vertham had already published a fascinating essay on the hidden roots of 
hidden psychological roots of Native Son. Richard Wright was very impressed by it. And the two of them went on to found a psychiatric clinic in Harlem called the Paul Lafargue Clinic, named after the son-in-law of Karl Marx, who was an Afro-Cuban socialist who published a book in praise of, of, of laziness. And uh, essentially what Vertham and Richard Wright believed, and the reason that they created this, um, this clinic, was that Harlemites really needed psychological care for the burden and stresses of racism. And that racism had to be understood as a psychological problem as much as a political and economic one. On the one hand, we have Eldridge Cleaver picking up a kind of celebration of, of Bigger Thomas. And then we have Black feminists of the 70s. Right. I mean, there were, there were essentially two schools of criticism of, of Bigger Thomas. One was the Baldwin-Ellison view that, 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 that Bigger Thomas did not represent the uh, complexity of, of, of Black Americans. As uh, Ellison put it, uh, Richard Wright could imagine Bigger Thomas, but Bigger Thomas could not imagine Richard Wright. Black, what Black feminists, I think, were particularly horrified by was the merciless and cruel killing of Bess, uh, the, girl, the Black girlfriend uh, in Native Son, and also the machismo that ran through much of Richard Wright's work. However, Richard Wright did evolve with respect to the question of gender. When he traveled to Spain in the early 1950s, later the subject of his, of his travelogue, Pagan Spain, he was appalled by the conditions in which women lived and actually drew comparisons between the way that women were forced to dress in Spain and the white sheets um, of the Ku Klux Klan. So, and he, and he came to see women as being as saddled by oppression uh, as black people were. So his, his you know, right evolved far more than his critics were willing to allow for. And the, the really the central turning point of his life came in 1946 when he left America, went into exile in France, invited by Levi Strauss, published there with the help of Camus, championed by Sartre and Beauvoir, a celebrity and a hero to the existentialists. But he came to object to those who wanted him to serve as a representative writer of American Blacks. Uh, you write, he felt a new form of isolation and claustrophobia in Paris. Tell us about that and about his work in this period you describe him as caught between Stalinism and the American empire. Well, I think that, you know, that Wright, first of all, when, 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 when Wright first came to Paris, he felt a tremendous sense of liberation and gave interviews in which he said that there was more freedom in a single block in Paris uh, than in all of the United States. Um, he reveled in the attention. He held court at, at cafes. He befriended not only Sartre and Beauvoir and Camus, but, but Picasso and, uh, and uh, various other Parisian uh, celebrities. But I think he also felt cut off from the sources of his inspiration in the United States. Um, I think he suffered from a certain kind of melancholy 
Um, he also felt a, a great sense of ideological constriction. His closest friends, uh, many of his closest friends in France were fellow travelers of the Communist Party. He had left America partly to get away from the American Communist Party. Um, at the same time, he was courted by cold warriors, um, by liberal anti-communists who wanted him to uh, uh, denounce people he'd been close to. And although he had written uh, a long piece explaining his decision to leave the Communist Party in the Atlantic, later a part of his memoir, uh, American Hunger, which was the second expurgated part of his memoir, Black Boy, um, he uh, did not, um, he, he, he was not interested in becoming a professional anti-communist. Uh, so he felt very much caught between the American empire and Stalinism. Neither of them uh, was something that he could get behind. Um, and I think at the same time, uh, he did feel as though he did, he did experience that burden of representation and he wanted to liberate himself from it and explore new themes and grow, which is what he tried to do uh, in the fiction that he published uh, in Paris, although admittedly it was less successful than his early his early novels in America. In his late work in Paris, he wrote about how <clears throat> the obstacle. <clears throat> in his late work in Paris, he wrote about how the obstacles on the road to freedom were as much psychological as economic, and he wrote a trilogy of books about decolonization. You call them the great achievement of his last decade. They're very little known. Uh, tell us about them. In 1955, Richard Wright traveled to Indonesia to attend the Bandung Conference of Non-Aligned Nations with support from the uh, Congress of Cultural Freedom, which was a CIA-backed uh, organization. Um, he wrote a book on that conference uh, called the, uh, the Color Curtain. This was the second book that he wrote on the decolonizing world. The first uh, was an account of the Gold Coast, uh, which later became Ghana. And it was very much about the personality of Kwame Nkrumah, the independence leader who became the first president of independent Ghana. And then he published a book called White Man Listen about uh, the uh, psychological dilemmas and predicaments of people of color, especially elite people of color who were, who were uh, leaders of the decolonization movements, but who also felt a certain kind of estrangement uh, from the rural masses. And, um, you know, these books were, were not really, um, did, these books were not, were not given much attention uh, in his own lifetime. They were, uh, first of all, they're, they're very personal books. They're works of reportage, but they're also highly subjective. And they're very much about Richard Wright's own reactions to the people uh, that he meets. For example, when he goes to the Bandung conference, he's approached by a group of Arab journalists who show him photographs of Palestinian refugees. And, and Wright is throttled uh, by the encounter, because he, as he says in the book, um, uh, the you know the Holocaust has just taken place, and oh no, this is the next chapter. Jews <laughs> in Palestine fighting Arabs in Palestine. So um, I think, in in retrospect, you know these books can be seen as a kind of precocious form of new what became known as new journalism. Interestingly, Richard Wright 
in James Baldwin's uh, retrospective essay published in 1960, Alas, Poor Richard, was faulted for having ignored the problems of the colonized because of the freedoms that he enjoyed in Paris. Baldwin essentially argued that he'd become a white man in France. In fact, Richard Wright wrote far more, far more extensively, and in some ways more trenchantly about the dilemmas of colonized peoples as a reporter than Baldwin ever did. And yet he still hasn't been given credit for this. Adam Schatz, he wrote a spectacular piece about Richard Wright in the October 7th issue of the London Review of Books. You can read it online at lrb.co.uk. And Adam's new podcast launches later this month. It's called Myself with Others, and it features conversations with Vivian Gornick, Marco Jefferson, Joe Sacco, and others. That's Myself with Others, a podcast coming in late October. Adam, Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.